And so whenever he takes James and beheads him or kills him with a sword, however he goes about and does it, then the Christians are going to be taking notice of this and say, wait a minute, what happened? Now, an interesting thing to note, whenever Judas committed suicide, whenever Judas died, they replaced him, right? Whenever James was martyred, did they replace him? No. No. The purpose of the 12 apostles was to be the mouthpieces to the 12 tribes to get the gospel to the Jews first, and they had received the gospel. They were rejecting the gospel. God was turning to the Gentiles, and so there was no need to replace James. The apostles had done their job. They were the foundation. They were the founding of the early church. They, they were the ones that were there, the 12 pillars, if you will. And so they had done their place, and there was not an apostolic succession. That's why I'm pointing that out. There was no apostolic succession. They didn't continue to appoint further apostles and further apostles down throughout time. When the last apostle, John, died, that was the end of the apostles. Okay? And so with this, we don't, like I said, we don't have a whole lot of information about James's death. We don't have a... We don't have an explanation why God didn't rescue James. You look at that and say, God, he was an apostle. He was a faithful follower. Why didn't you rescue him? Why, did, why would you deliver Peter and not deliver James? And that's one of those questions we don't have an answer to. God didn't see fit to give us an answer in his word. And we have to basically attribute this to God's wisdom and his sovereignty. He knows what's best. Right. He knows what's best. And so he was working all things together for uh, for the good of them and for us. And I don't believe that James had any complaint about this. Okay? We might look at this and say, well, this was cruel. How could you allow this ha to happen to your servant? But the Bible tells us plainly that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And so James was immediately carried uh, by angels to God's presence. He immediately saw his reward. He was the first of the apostles that got to experience heaven. Okay? So along with the idea of him being the first martyr, he was also the first one in heaven. So, you know, with, with the bad comes the good as well, right? But not only that, in Matthew chapter number 20, I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time, but in Matthew chapter number 20, we find that uh, James and John's mother approaches Jesus. Y'all remember the story? No. She approaches Jesus and says, Grant that my sons may set in your kingdom one on the right hand and one on your left. And Jesus begins to question James and John and says, Are you able to drink of the cup which I'm going to drink of? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And they said, yes, we are, right? And Jesus says, you shall indeed drink of the cup and be baptized with the baptism, but to give you a place at my right hand and my left is not mine to give. That's up to the Father, okay? And so why am I bringing that up? Well, James did indeed drink of that cup of suffering, of martyrdom, of death that Jesus did. He went through those things that Jesus did as Jesus had said he would, Okay? And so James became the first of the apostles that died, and John became the last. I find that kind of interesting. They said, we want to set at your right hand and on your left. 
And Jesus says, well, if you want the blessings, there's also going to be the hardships that go along with that. And so there was one that was the first, one that was the last. They were the the bookends, if you will, of the apostles as they had died for the faith. Okay, And so those are just some interesting things about that. But like I said, James would have not complained at all because God was taking care of him. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so no matter what we go through on this earth, glory is just before us. For, Christian, for us as Christians, it doesn't matter what we must go through or we must endure, that weaving only endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning, right? And so we find these truths in Scripture that James, though he uh, didn't go out the way that we would like to go out, nonetheless, in God's will, he was protected, he was safe, and God took care of him, okay? And so that brings us down here to the idea that uh, whenever Herod saw that James's death brought the Jews so much happiness, so much joy. They were rejoicing in the death of a good man. That's, that's pretty pathetic, isn't it? But it has a significance because this is one of the, the mile markers, if you will. This is one of the, the, the waypoints that show Israel's rejection of Jesus Israel's rejection of Christianity. And so, as I said, up to this point, the Christianity had basically been a, uh, a sect of Judaism. And whenever Gentiles were included in, that was the thing that the Jews could not tolerate. That was the thing that the Jews could not put up with. And that marked a breaking point between the Jews and the church. Okay. And this marked their rejection of as a nation, okay? It marked their rejection of Christianity for the Jews. Now, there are plenty of Jews that have been saved, but by and large, as a group, they rejected Christ, they rejected Christianity, and they were rejoicing in the persecution and the suffering of the church, okay? And the reason I point all of this out is in chapter number 12, we are going to turn our attention from the Jews to the Gentiles. Up to this point, Peter has had a prominent place. And at the end of this chapter, whenever Peter uh, leaves the door of the house after reporting that God has broken him out of jail, he goes into hiding. And then we read very little about Peter from then to the end of the book of Acts. It's going to turn our attention to Paul and to his travels throughout the Gentile world. And so in God's, in God's mind, in God's plan, this was the last mark against them. This was the final thing. And so God, I believe, and I, I said earlier, he doesn't explain to us why he allowed James to die, but I believe he allowed James to be martyred as a final testimony, a final strike against the Jews, because uh, he tells the apostles that they're to be testimony to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles, right? And so it's the fact that the Jews have had their chance, and they are now saying, we don't want it. And so they've passed on it, and so God says, okay, for a time, I'm going to set you on the shelf. For a time, I'm going to set you aside, and I'm going to turn my focus and my attention on the church, on the Gentiles, 
Okay, he's not done with the Jews altogether. He's got a plan for them. We read in Revelation that he's going to turn to Jacob. There's going to be the time of Jacob's trouble, that there's going to be a remnant that's brought back to him, and that all of the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be fulfilled. But for this time, they have rejected him. He has set them aside. And in this world today, he is working through the church, which is primarily Gentile in nature. Okay? Does that make sense to everybody? Anyone got any arguments? Any questions? Okay, anyway. So that's what's going on with this. He arrests Peter now because he said, hey, this is working well. I can just go through their ranks and knock out one leader at a time, and I will collapse the entire system, and the Jews are going to be eternally grateful because I have gotten rid of this errant sect from amongst them. But he didn't count on the fact that he was messing with God and with God's people. That God allowed him a chance with James, but he wasn't going to do the same with Peter. And so he arrests Peter. He's looking at it to be an easy target. But Peter has escaped prison before, right? So it says that he appoints four quaternions of soldiers. That means four groups of four, four watches in a day. And so he would have four soldiers guarding him at a watch. There were two that were chained to him, two that were watching the doors. And Peter was there amongst them. Then, I guess, every six hours, because you know, six times four, right? Every six hours, they would come and change out soldiers. So 16 soldiers in charge of guarding Peter to make sure that they didn't make the same mistake again of letting Peter go. Herod thought that he was in charge. He thought he was in control. He knew what he was doing. And so he had Peter there sitting in jail, kept by all of these guards, and he had planned on at the end of the feast of the Passover to bring him out and to slaughter him. We don't know exactly how long he was arrested for. Uh, He was arrested during the feast of the Passover. Whether it was at the beginning or the end, we don't know. But Peter, it seems, spent several days in jail. He spent several days knowing that his sentence was death, that he was supposed to follow in James's footsteps. And James already proved that the apostles weren't above martyrdom. And so how would you feel if you were in Peter's position? What would you be doing if you were in jail, chained to soldiers, awaiting your death right after James has just been killed? I think you'd be sweating a little bit. I think, I think it's an unpalatable situation. Was it? Very unpalatable situation. Mm-hmm. But then, Peter is, in some case, or in some case, was peculiar. Because he's been filled by the Holy Spirit. So it makes the whole of different. As Christians, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit as well. Of course. But for this present day, mm-hmm. you cannot see a man who is... Uh, Imprisoned, mm-hmm. I'm receiving praises in the prison custody. Mm-hmm. It happens anyway. Mm-hmm. It actually happens, but it's not very common. Mm-hmm. It's not common. So, that, so that's just my own interpretation. Mm-hmm. But in that case, it was a peculiar mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. Very peculiar. Okay. Well, it was a peculiar deliverance, definitely. Of course, a peculiar deliverance. <clears throat> mm-hmm. yeah. But what, what makes 
the big difference in Peter's case was that the church was praying for him. Mm-hmm. The church was still praying. That's a big thing, yes. Yeah, that, that it makes it a big difference. Mm-hmm. The church was praying for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's been plenty of different people down through the ages, plenty of martyrs that have given their lives for the faith that have went out in similar way to Stephen and to Peter. People who were able to sing praises while they were in jail. There is accounts of martyrs down through time that even as the the timbers were burning about their feet, they were singing praises to God and asking forgiveness for their persecutors as they were being slaughtered. And there's so many people that that's happened to. And what we find is a truth of God's word that it says that his grace is sufficient. And so no matter what we are going through, God's grace is sufficient if we will turn our eyes to him, if we will be looking at him during these circumstances. The Bible says he giveth more grace. And so he will allow us to go through these things with his spirit, with his power, with these supernatural abilities to still be smiling, still be praising God, still maintain the faith even in the eyes of certain death, if we will just look to him. But something that you brought up is very important as well, is back to the thing of we aren't alone. And so he had the church that was praying for him. And I love as we go through scripture to find the word but in scripture. Okay? And I brought this out in the past. I know that seems silly. But as you're reading through scripture and you find the word but, it means we're changing direction. Something is about to, to, to go differently. The status quo is changing, okay? And so as we're going through Scripture and you find the word but, it was going this way, but God intervened, right? And so whenever we pick up at verse number 5, I'll go ahead and continue reading in the chapter here. It says, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And now as I read this, I want you all to be picturing this in your head because I think this is quite humorous, okay? If you can picture this in your head, it's funny the way that God does this, and I believe God has a sense of humor. But anyway, verse number six, and when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, so God allowed it to come right up to the very last moment, the night before his execution. He could have delivered him, you know, very early on, but he let him go all the way down to the buzzer, if you will. And so Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly, and his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind thy sandals, and so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto his, uh, into the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through the street, through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him, and Peter was come to himself. He said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. 
And so we'll stop there for just a moment. So he's in jail. He knows that the next day is execution is set. And what's Peter doing? He's sleeping. He's relaxed. We can go back to Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel was surrounded by lots of lions, but the Lord had shut their mouths. I believe he was in there laying. He probably had the best sleep he'd had in a while. He may have pulled up one of those fluffy kitties and had a, had a nap, used it for a pillow. I don't know. But there was peace whenever you are in God's hand and you know that your life is in his hand. And so Peter, impetuous Peter, always sticking his foot in his mouth, always rushing and jumping to conclusions, is a changed man being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and being transformed by the power and the Word of God. It doesn't mean he's never going to make a mistake again. We find in Galatians that Paul has to call him out at one point in time, right? It doesn't mean that he's without flaw, that he is perfect, but we find that there is a change that takes place and there is a peace that he hasn't had before that is now exhibited. And so as he is there, chained to two guards, knowing his execution is in the morning, he is sleeping soundly. And could you imagine the guards as they're discussing this? They have been around men who were uh, condemned to die. They had guarded other prisoners. They had seen how men typically act in this circumstance, and they are probably severely confused. Sure. They're like, look at this guy. You, he's just sleeping. What's wrong with him? He acts like he's on holiday or something and he's about to die. But whenever we look at this passage, it says that God sends the angel down. The angel comes into the, the cell with him and it smites him on the side. You wonder why the angels always come and they say, be not afraid, and the guys are always cowering in fear. Well, this angel just comes up to him and says, pow, wake up. <laughs> Rise up quickly. Don't forget your shoes and your coat. That's practical, isn't it? Yeah. And so the angel causes the, the chains to fall off of his hands, tells him, get your shoes and your coat. It's a cold night. You're going to need this. So God's doing what Peter can't, but Peter is still doing what he can the angel could have put his shoes and his coat on him for him, right? Yeah. But the angel is doing what Peter can't do. Peter is still responsible for the things that he can. Right. God doesn't waste miracles on things that we can do. Right? And so anyway, he gets his hat and his coat or whatever on, and they take off, and Peter thinks he's dreaming because he was sleeping good, right? Mm. And the gate or the cell opens, and they're walking along. They get to the gate, and the gate opens of its own accord, and they just walk through. And this is long before the days of automatic doors. <laughs> Peter never saw a door just open when you walk up to it. We're used to that, right? Yeah. But anyway, he walks up to the door, and the door just opens up. He goes through it, and he's out in the middle of Main Street all of a sudden, and he's just like, okay, and the angel disappears. Doesn't give him any further instruction, instructions. He's like, okay, Peter, I'm out of here. You figure it out from here. You've got common sense. You've got the Spirit of God. You figure out what you need to do next. And so the angel leaves him, and he's like, oh, okay. It wasn't a dream after all, and he is free. Now, I wonder what was going on back in the prison. You think the guards woke up? I mean, they, they had to be asleep, right? And so they woke up, and they're like, where did he go? Maybe it was whatever the next 
group of guards came to relieve them. They came and started banging on the door. Hey, guards, wake up. Where is the prisoner? They had no clue. He was going. How could the prisoner get from the chains, the guards that he was with, the guards at the door, through the gate, through the gate, through the gate, and he disappeared? And so God delivered him, but what the Bible accredits, accredits it all to is that the church prayed for him. Prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And so the church was at this place of persecution. The things of God fell out of favor with men and with society. And they were doing plenty of things that were wicked and that were ungodly. And what was the church's response? Just to pray. We greatly downplay the necessity and the power of prayer in the church and in our society today. We try, as I said in the introduction here this morning, we try to lean to our own understanding. We try to do things on our own through our own powers. And if this would have happened today, if God's man had been imprisoned and was set to execution in Ireland today, what would be most Christians' response? Political activism. Get the petitions out. Contact the the uh, TDs, right? March and pick it down at the door. We would have all these different things that we would be putting in place. We would be protesting. We would be trying to get interviews on RTE and on Shannon's side. We would be trying to plead for the cause. We would be lawyering up, trying to find a solicitor to take the case. We would be protesting. We would be all over Facebook and Instagram. We would be making a fuss. But we don't find any of that going on here. So am I saying that we are to be pacifists and that we are supposed to just lay down and take it? No, I'm saying that we have access to someone better than any solicitor, any media personality, any petition, any government, Anything that we have access to, we have access to one that is greater. And the Bible says that if we have faith, that we are able to move mountains. Is that talking about move mountains literally? I mean, if it was God's will and there was a reason to move the mountain, God can move the mountain. But the idea is how God can do the impossible whenever we are looking to him and trusting in him and seeking him rather than ourselves and our own devices. And so I'm afraid that if this was happening today, that prayer would be a very small part of it. Yes, we would probably uh, have token prayer requests. Pray for so-and-so. He's been persecuted. They're, they've got him down in prison, and they're expecting to, to uh, condemn him or sentence him to death or whatever's going to happen. We'll be praying for him. And it not being anything much more than that. It's kind of token, kind of trite. We don't actually get serious about this matter of prayer and seeking God's face and desiring him to intervene, knowing that we have no power or ability of ourselves, but that all power and all ability lie within him. Right? And so these believers were there praying earnestly 
all night, all that week, however long he was in prison, praying for God to deliver Peter, praying for God to release Peter, and God answered that prayer. Now I want to come back to Peter for just a moment. And we talked a moment ago about how could Peter sleep in that circumstance. And I want to actually get into a couple things here that I believe should give us peace in whatever circumstance that we find ourselves in. Because whenever we look at Peter, Peter was able to rest in his circumstances because he could recall prior victories that he had went through. You start looking through Peter's life and see all of the different things that God had brought him through, and those gave him assurance, they gave him peace, they gave him hope that God was with him. He could look back at different trials that he had faced. He could remember the time that he was walking on the sea and started going under whenever he quit trusting Christ and looked at the storm and the circumstances, and he started sinking and he called out, and God saved him. Jesus saved him and pulled him out of that and asked him, why did you doubt? Right? He could go back to whenever Jesus warned him ahead of time and says, you're going to deny me. And he says, no, no, I'm not going to do this. And then he did. He says, God knows what I'm going to do before I ever do it. He knows what lies ahead. Jesus predicted that he would be crucified. After the crucifixion, whenever uh, Peter had rejected him and Jesus came back to him and sought him out and sought to restore him and said, I still have a plan and a purpose for you. I've got things that I want you to do. Peter went back through all those things and said, I'm in the Lord's hands. God has brought me up to here. He has done all these things. Maybe he went back to the day of Pentecost whenever God allowed him to preach and there were uh, thousands of people that were saved. And he says, it's up to God to do whatever God will do. I'm going to rest in him. He's promised me that there's going to be a place that's prepared for me. And so that's something else that he could rely on, something else that he could rest in, not just past victories, but these precious promises that God has given And so Jesus had told them, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and you're going to go where I am at. You're going to spend eternity with me. And Peter's like, it doesn't matter what they do. They can kill this body. They can just dispatch me to heaven a little bit quicker. But in the end, I'm not afraid of what man's going to do to me because I have the promises of God. Uh, Not only the promise of heaven, but even in John chapter 21, verse number 18, Jesus promises Peter... He, it's actually a prophecy. He says, uh, whenever you were young, you went where you would and all these different things. And he says, but when you are old, and he foretells of Peter giving his life as a martyr by crucifixion, but he tells him it's going to be whenever he's old. Y'all ever catch that? Peter had a reassurance. He said, Jesus has already told me that yes, I'm going to be martyred for the faith, but it's not going to be yet. Whenever I'm old, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed. But not today. I'm not old yet. (laughs) And so I wonder if that went through his mind. And he's like, Jesus told me that I was going to live to old age. Then I was going to give my life for him. And then I was going to be in glory with him. And one day I'll rule and reign with him. So look at all the promises that he had. All the things that God had revealed. And so whenever we look at our own lives, we can look at past victories. We can say, look what God's brought me through. I think I'll just trust him for this one too. We can look at his promises and the things that he says in his word and say, yeah, 
Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, as I quoted earlier. We can look and see that God has things that lay ahead of us and that the things that he has promised, we can bank on it. We can be assured of those things. They will happen. And so prior victories, precious promises, future glory. And I've already kind of hinted at this one a little bit, but he says, I don't have to worry about death because I know what's on the other side. Right? Right. Bible says that precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. Right. It doesn't mean that God enjoys watching us die. He's not some kind of masochist or something. But he just knows that we are escaping this world of sin and of hardship and of difficulty, and we are going to that place that he has prepared of perfect peace and of blessing. See, we see it as an end. He sees it as a beginning, right? All right. And so Peter had a hold of that. He knew that whenever I close my eyes in death, I'm going to see my Savior. I miss being around him. So, hey, go ahead. It doesn't matter. And then the fourth thing that we've already covered is the fact that he had praying friends. Just the fact that people were praying for him made a difference. And I don't want to ever discount this. And whenever we're going through things, we shouldn't be ashamed to call on others, to ask for the help of others, and get them praying along with us. Because there is power in prayer. And there are times whenever we are struggling and we need to to borrow a little bit of faith from those who are around us. We need to be reassured. We need to gain some strength from those around us. And there is peace and there is strength in knowing that we're not alone and that other people are petitioning the God of heaven on our behalf. And so because of these things, Peter was able to lay there and rest soundly, even in the face of imminent danger, even in prison, knowing that God had him perfectly kept in the palm of his hand. Right. So as we continue on this, uh, I I told you that this this story is kind of funny, and I kind of quit in the middle of it. But verse number 11, no, verse number 12. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And Peter knocked at the door of the gate. A damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, Thou art mad, But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then they said, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he, beckoning unto them with a hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. And as soon, now as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. And so as we see this passage, I, I, I said it's, it's funny for me to imagine this. It's funny for me to think about this because what's going on here is these people have been praying earnestly for days, it seems like. And whenever their prayer is answered, what's their response? unbelief okay and so we've been talking about how important it is for us to pray and some people get caught up in this idea of how we have to be super spiritual as we're praying 
And the Bible says that the uh, effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, right? But as we look at this passage here, they are praying, God, please deliver Peter. God, please deliver Peter. God delivers Peter like, nah, it didn't happen. <laughs> Can you relate to that? And so Peter comes, he's knocking on the door. He's thinking as he's walking down the street, where could I go? Well, I know that the believers meet down here at this lady's house. And so that would be the place for me to go. He goes, starts banging on the door in the middle of the night. And they have their all night prayer vigil going. The servant comes and she doesn't open the door, which you can't blame her. She's expecting soldiers to come and get them next, right? And so anyway, she comes, she Instead of opening the door, she's, okay, who's out there? And Peter says, hey, it's me. And she's excited, and she's so excited that she doesn't even open the door. And she runs away, and she said, hey, everybody, Peter's outside. And Peter's like, yes, I'm still outside. And they're like, no, nah, it can't be him. Must have been his angel. Yeah, that's going to be my first thought. <laughs> can't be an angel or can't be a man it had to be an angel right so it's not Peter it's his angel and Peter's still banging on the door because hey I just got out of prison and they didn't want me out I need to hide don't leave me knocking on the door out here in the street and so he's banging on the door and they finally come and they open the door and they are all astonished they are all amazed because they didn't expect their prayers to be answered did you hear me? Mm -hmm. They didn't expect their prayers to be answered. Yeah. And it's amazing to me. I can look back over my life at some prayers that I prayed, some even half-heartedly, and look back and see how God answered those prayers yeah. in spite of me. Oh, yeah. uh, there's the one man that came to Jesus and was looking for healing for his child. And the Lord says, if you believe, all things are possible. Right. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Basically, he's saying, Lord, I believe, but I kind of doubt too. Yeah. And that's really the experience of probably every Christian. If you say that's not you, you're probably lying. Yeah. Okay? Because we do. We have doubts. We struggle with faith. There's things that we pray, and we know that it can only happen if God does it, but then there's still that idea of doubt. As they're praying for Peter, they know that James has already died, so you know Peter could die too. And so they come and or Peter comes and they answer the door. They let him in. He has to quiet them all down. He recounts all the events of that night. He says, go and tell James, the brother of Jesus, about this. And then he goes into hiding. Now, I'm not saying that he continued in hiding. Before time, he was in hiding. And records show us that he traveled about and he, he preached and he taught and he discipled. And he, he did a great work. But he kind of fades off the pages of Scripture now, and the attention gets turned to the Apostle Paul. So we see in this a great lesson for us whenever we are uh, facing difficulties, whenever we are uh, out of favor with the government and with the, the society which we live in, and whenever they become more and more ungodly, our first, uh, our first action, our first resort, not our last resort— should be to approach the throne of grace, should be to cast our cares on Jesus. It should be to seek him and to seek his power and his ability and his deliverance rather than relying on ourselves, our methods, and our abilities. Okay? 
And then whenever God does come through, a lot of times we're going to be astonished by it. A lot of times he's going to surprise us in the way that he does things. But the last thing that I want to bring out in this is what God does with Herod. Remember, we're talking about whenever society opposes us, whenever society is opposed to God and to the things of God. So we started all this out with Herod. Herod said, hey, the Christians are easy target. They are easy pickings. They are a peaceful people. They're a bunch of do-gooders. So it doesn't matter how we mistreat them because we are the ones who are in charge. We are the ones in control. We are the ones that have the power. And the last verse I read was 18. There was no small stir about the soldiers. They were trying to figure out what do we do now. And so it had to be reported to Herod. And so verse number 19, when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and there abode. Herod had this grand plan. This is going to exalt me. This is going to lift me up in the eyes of all the Jewish people. And now he had been embarrassed. He'd been made a mockery. God had taken this and completely turned it against him. He said, this is going to lift me up, and God knocked the prop out from under him. Okay? And so he went down to Caesarea, away from the Jews to a prominent or predominantly Jewish, or excuse me, predominantly Gentile area, and he kind of went there to, to lick his wounds. Okay? And since the Jews, or excuse me, since the Christians weren't an easy target, he had to turn his hatred to someone else. And we find that while he's down in Caesarea, that now the ones who are the target of his displeasure are those of Tyre and Sidon. So verse 20, and Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain, their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod arrayed in a royal apparel, sat on the throne, and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a god and not of men. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. But, there's not a but, the word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So Herod thought that he could wipe out the Christians. He thought that he could go against God and prevail. And whenever he was uh, beaten, he went away, he turned his displeasure to others, and they came through political motives, through political means, the way the society still works to this day, and they started to give him praise, and they started to try to flatter him and gain his favor through flattery. Political bribes and all of these still still happens to this day. And so during this, Herod is arrayed in his royal robes. He stands up and makes this grand speech before all of them. And so just to flatter him further, they say, oh, it's the voice of gods. And Herod was just soaking it up. He's like, yeah, I kind of am a god, ain't I? And so he was soaking it all up. He was enjoying all of this. And God says, you took it a step too far. Yeah. See, the Christians could have went on a rampage against him. They could have uh, tried to do many different things. But the Bible says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. 
And not always does he repay so speedily, but in this case he does. And so God allows evil to prevail to a point, and then whenever their wickedness has come to a, to a completion, whenever it has come to uh, uh, come far enough, I guess I'll say, God says that's far enough. And so he gives Herod an embarrassing and painful death. Secular sources say that Herod suffered for five days with this ailment of uh, worms eating him from the inside out, basically. And after five days of grueling agony, he died. I mean, always for a king, a god, as they said, to die, to be eaten alive by worms. I mean, is there a worse way? And so once again, God has shown, I guess, in a way, his sense of humor in this. And he says, Herod, you think you're so great. You think you can attack my people. You think that you are a God. I will show you that you are but a man and that it is God that reigns. It is God that rules. And you can't mess with his people without messing with him. And so we can take heart no matter what this world does to us. If they are attacking God's people, they are attacking God. And God will take care of it in due course. And so he took care of Herod. It was all sorted out. Herod was dead. And the results of all of this, he said, I'm going to wipe out Christianity. But verse number 24 says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Man has their plans. Man has their ideas. They think they are something great. And if we're not careful as Christians, we start to think that these wicked rulers and politicians are actually in control. But at the end of the day, they cannot do anything unless God allows it. And God only allows it for his purpose and for his plan. And in the end, it will all make sense. But until then, we have to let God be God and trust in him, put our lives and our faith in his hands. And he'll take care of us. So does anyone have any questions or any comments, anything to add today? I, I think I, I think uh, uh, Apostle Peter demonstrated high degree of faith. Mm-hmm. Even in that situation, fine, he tried to pray earnestly and maybe a whole lot of difference. But his own faith mm-hmm. as against fear. Because mm-hmm. he had faith in God, mm-hmm. he had he looked back at past victories and that puts him in the state of relaxation. He was really like, but he knew that God was surely yeah. doing because he serves a living God. Yeah. So that is the uh, need to have faith. Mm-hmm. Faith and fear can never coexist. No. Exactly, yes. So yeah. And see, he wasn't even uh, keeping an all night prayer vigil and praying and fasting. He's just like, God's got it. Went to sleep. <laughs> Okay, well, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll take a take a short break. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Just thank you for your blessings, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for these passages that we have in Scripture to show, Lord, how you are in charge and you are in control. And it doesn't matter what uh, this world does. It doesn't matter how corrupt or how wicked or how anti-God it becomes. 
that uh, you're still in control, you're still in charge, and uh, we can safely rest within your hands and within your plans and allow you to be gone. And we just thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for all you're willing to do. Ask you for your your blessings, your guidance in this service today. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.